This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Bunch of headlines, uh, Tim and I just want to mention before we get into our next guest. Uh, the U.S. CDC updating its COVID-19 guidance for kindergarten through high school, providing flexibility for local decision makers to determine what's needed to safely keep kids in the classroom. We are, though, Tim, seeing infections rising across most regions of the world as that Delta variant spreads. That from the World Health Organization's chief scientist. Yeah, we're also seeing South Africa going through a third wave as it's just battering the country right now. And in Canada, residents in Ontario could see the vast majority of restrictions lifted in August, a tale of two different stories when we look around the world when it comes to the vaccine and with COVID. And then there's those late-day headlines from Pfizer yesterday looking for emergency authorization for a third booster dose. Let's get to it with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, on the phone in New York City. Ian, so good to have you here. Happy Friday. Um, I got to start with the Pfizer headline. We are all trying to understand what's going on. Do we all need to be all of a sudden now a little worried about when our vaccine is going to wear off, when we need to get a booster. What's the conversations you guys are having at the hospital? Sure. Happy Friday. Thanks, guys. So uh, there's no question the Delta variant, uh, the Indian variant, is really becoming a, a global uh, dominant strain. And that's surprising. We're really seeing uh, uh, evolution in action here, right? The uh, organisms adapt to a changing environment. They tend to become more fit uh, and uh, outcompete other organisms, even if they're similar. Uh, so what we're really seeing is is the virus adapt and change and become uh, more contagious, higher concentrations in uh, sneezing or coughing. At this point, though, it seems to be similar risk. In other words, we're not seeing uh, more deaths really as a result of Delta other than in people who are not vaccinated. So for people who are not vaccinated, 99% of hospitalized patients are now uh, patients who have not received vaccines. So this is certainly an argument for the vaccine. The concern is that we are seeing some breakthrough cases. So I've certainly had my share of patients who've received both vaccines and who then become symptomatic with uh, the Delta variant. And a lot of this data is really based out of Israel, where they were vaccinated before we were, and they're beginning to see more breakthrough cases as well. So that's really the concern. Well, well, why, why is that? Is it because of the Delta variant? That's a great question. Uh, so it's it could be for a few reasons. One is, uh, even though uh, we're seeing antibodies that do slightly decrease over time, I can tell you most of the patients that we check for spike protein, and we try not to check everyone. I mean, that would be a waste of resources mm-hmm. if you're checking antibodies on everyone who's who's been vaccinated. Um, but in select people who may be traveling or have other issues, those antibodies are sky high. 
But it does look like over time, uh, and certainly in Israel, um, that antibody levels are dropping. So probably uh, a combination of slightly lower antibody levels and perhaps a more aggressive variant in Delta is why we're seeing um, these breakthrough infections. The good news is in terms of hospitalizations, and part of this is our data and part of it is Israel's data, you know, we're seeing a a, a range of effectiveness that drops from 98% to about 90 So the vaccines are still very effective. The question is, um, will that begin to wane over time? The other question that comes up is, should we be uh, developing a Delta vaccine, which does make sense, but maybe we should put our efforts into vaccinating more people than giving a third dose to people who have already received two doses? you're preaching to the choir. So what's interesting, though, is, and we've had this conversation this week, um, Dr. Lusbader, is that if you can't get those people to get the vaccine, you can't get to herd immunity. And that increasingly gives the virus the opportunity to seize on to new hosts to continue to mutate, which could potentially, I'm not, I'm not a Susie pessimism or pessimistic kind of person, but it's, it does open the door to creating a virus that is even more potent, more lethal, and more contagious contagious than what we're dealing with right now, right? That's the reality of it. Right. So the longer the virus replicates globally, the higher the chance of another variant developing. I think it's inevitable that there will be, you know, other variants, you know, Lambda all the way out to IOTA. Um, Mm. So we certainly feel that there will be more variants. The question is, will they be potentially more lethal? It is an argument to get everyone vaccinated. Of course, there's hesitancy and rarely we are seeing, you know, odd symptoms after people get vaccinated and you know you always have to tell patients look what is the risk of getting covid versus the risk of the vaccine the risk of you know having a complication from covid is far greater than the risk of a complication from the vaccine although we do see a a handful of issues after that but i agree with you i think if if we can't get people everyone vaccinated and someone is willing to take a third shot that probably would provide some protection yes Hey, the Dr. Lesbian. Is when? Yeah, Dr. Lesbian, just in 20 seconds, are we going to be wearing masks again in the fall? You know, I think right now we're seeing people well protected. There's no real urgent concern. The fall is a few months away. I don't see any real concerns. I think we're beginning to demask. If Delta really takes off for another variant, we may have to rethink that approach. But right now, uh, people are taking their masks off, and I think they're doing well. Let's get right back to Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, on the phone in New York City. One more thing on the virus, and then we want to move on. Um, what's the end game, you know, in terms of how you think, Dr. Lusbader, this works out? Is it just a case of a lot of people, I'm thinking U.S., I'm just looking at the U.S. situation, a lot of people get the, the vaccine, and that helps create some kind of herd immunity. You've got other people who are going to get the virus. They're either going to recover, develop their own immunity, or they're going to die off, unfortunately, uh, to be so blunt. And then that's how we get to a better place, ultimately. 
Well, this is a global problem, and even though we like to focus on the United States, we, we really can't. Um, at this point, I believe globally, out of 8 billion, 8 plus billion people, somewhere in the 3 billion range um, may have received you know, one, one or more vaccines. We don't really have great data from countries like China and Russia, and we also really don't know how effective those vaccines are. They seem to be not nearly as effective as the uh, you know mRNA vaccines, I think um, we are going through this for at least another year or more. We've uh, back in 1918, it took three years in multiple waves with the Spanish flu, um, and I think we're going to see a higher death count and and higher disability, and it may be. Uh, even years of post-COVID or long-haul symptoms, um, this is not a completely benign illness, even if you get it. Loss of smell and taste and so forth may be transient, but there may be other issues. So we do need to work on things, perhaps like ivermectin or other maybe off-the-shelf medications or other treatments or preventatives while we're waiting to vaccinate people. We really have not focused enough on that area of research, and I think we need to do that. And I think we still have kind of enough, uh, a rough year or two in the United States. I believe the, as we said, um, we still have a pretty good level of protection, you know, the 90, 95 percent, even against the Delta variant. But in the areas of the country that are not vaccinated, they're going to have an increase in hospitalizations and other problems. Uh, it's it's look uh, this is something that we are we know we're gonna have to be living with for years and the, as you mentioned it's a question of treatment it's a question of getting more and more people vaccinated dr lesbader while we have you i want to talk about the heat wave that is hitting parts of the united states california bracing for uh, another weekend of heat that could set records temperatures above 110 degrees fahrenheit in some parts of the central valley of california as a doctor as a medical professional how do people what do people need to know about surviving these type of heat very important. Uh, we're, st- we're definitely seeing uh, some global changes. Uh, why and for how long, we don't really know. Um, I do want to mention uh, something called Ariel's Checklist, which people can Google A-R-I-E-L, uh, Ariel's Checklist, and it talks about acclimating to the heat. Uh, not hiking in the middle of the day, slowly acclimating, hydrating, uh, wearing loose clothing, getting enough sleep, uh, and determining the wet bulb globe temperature. In other words, really, what is the ambient uh, temperature? Uh, and why this is very important is because, based on your age, health, and activity, once the body's temperature begins to rise, a lot of problems happen. There can be nausea, headache, uh, dehydration. And once the body's temperature goes above 104, often it's irreversible. You can have confusion, fainting, seizures, uh, and death, quite frankly. So once you get irreversible damage to the brain or the heart, uh, it's, it's uh, a real problem. Wow. So it's very important for people to understand the difference between uh, heat exposure, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. Heat stroke is really the life-threatening you know, condition. And to be very careful to get into cool areas, have some air conditioning, conditioning, even if that's not available, can minimize your exposure because this is often undiagnosed and people, by the time they're symptomatic, are often very far along with with body temperatures and core temperatures that are very elevated beyond what they're aware. And people around them should pay attention and see if someone does not look good when they're outside 
respond right away. Don't think they're making this up. It's it's a very lethal uh, and often underdiagnosed condition. And increasingly, we're seeing these hotter temperatures coming earlier and sooner and uh, more frequent uh, in places that normally didn't like yeah. the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, that was, was shocking. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Ian Lespader, Clinical Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So our top story on this Friday, of course, President Biden signing that sweeping executive order. It's all about promoting competition across American industries and in the labor market. He's calling on regulators to take steps to lower drug prices, toughen merger enforcement in tech and banking, give workers more power to change jobs and negotiate higher wages. There is a lot, or I should say there are a lot of moving parts to this. Let's get to it and with what the Bloomberg audience needs to know. David McLaughlin is Justice Department of Justice reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. David, this thing is wide-ranging. It's far. It's sweeping. What do we need to know about the most important parts of it? Yeah, so it covers uh, about 72 different initiatives <laughs> and, and proposals. Um, and the, the basic idea is that, um, you know, competition and antitrust enforcement is, is primarily handled by the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department, and they review mergers and and um, monopoly conduct and that sort of thing. But what the idea of this, the idea of this order is to basically say to all government agencies that oversee different industries that you have a role to play in promoting competition through rules and regulations and that those agencies should be or could be doing more to promote uh, competition in the markets that they oversee. So is this about consumers winning? Is this about America winning against the rest of the rest of the world? What is, what's the end game? I'm kind of a payoff kind of girl. Like what, what's the point? Well, what I think this is a response to is um, a concern that many economists, antitrust experts have been raising over the last few years um, about, industries um, becoming, over the last couple of decades, very consolidated. And we see that mostly, or maybe primarily in, in the tech company, in the tech industry with the, with the big tech companies like, like Amazon and Google, et cetera. But really, it's an issue that um, many people see happening across the economy. And the worry is that um, it's leading to maybe higher prices, less choice for consumers, um, there's also this labor market issue. If you live in a town with fewer employers, this is definitely an issue in rural areas. You know, they, they have more leverage over you as a worker, and, and you have um, less leverage to bargain for higher wages, uh, which the president uh, mentioned today. So this is really an, an effort to go beyond tech, the, the, the stories that tend to be in the news right now, um, to cover other industries, um, and help consumers and workers. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was, uh, you know, it's funny. We were just talking with Joel Weber of Business Week and Eric Balchunas about David versus Goliath, and it was about engine number one going after ExxonMobil, uh, and they had a big win. And is that what it's about is David versus Goliath, you know, individuals, consumers who in many ways, and, so, and, and some workers, and we saw this play out during the pandemic, right, that really got hurt hard and were left behind while we know that there were some workers that 
were able to work at home. There was no really disruption in their lives. Uh, you know, so is that what it's about? Like getting to some of those inequities that we really saw big time during the pandemic. Yeah, because there's uh, plenty of research, uh, and the, and some people dispute this, but there is research showing that. Um, so when you when you have a monopoly or dominant firm in a market, of course that company may have the power to raise prices and may lead to less choice. But but some people think there are wider macroeconomic effects, effects on productivity, um, and income inequality. Like the superstar companies may pay their workers. Uh, very well, but others in the economy who may not be working at those companies might be losing out. And so um, there are worries that that when a dominant firms or just a handful of dominant firms are controlling markets, there are bigger um, problems that are being caused. Um, and so I think that's what the White the White House is trying to get at with this. So, David, now, what, what happens now? Because as we saw, we were listening to this, we were watching it. It was playing on our YouTube when Biden signed this executive order. He was flanked by members of his cabinet, by antitrust officials. What do they go and do now in order to put this into action? Well, so a lot of this now gets into rulemaking and regulation, which um, can be, as you know, kind of a long, grueling process because it can involve uh, court challenges. So, so for example, one of the um, proposals or directives that is in the order is restoring net neutrality, um, the requirement that Internet providers treat Internet traffic as basically the same. Um, and listeners might remember that that was a big fight for many years. Obama tried to, the Obama administration implemented net neutrality rules. They were challenged in the courts, eventually were undone. And so that, that went on for many years. So the impact was not immediate. And so I think that could be, um, I don't know if every proposal will be fought in the courts, but uh, some certainly will be. Um, so it could take some time, but mm. even some agencies like the FTC are already acting to um, implement some of these ideas. Well, it's interesting. When you were kicked off, you said 72 new different initiatives and proposals, all government agencies overseeing different industries. It's all about being more competitive. And I was thinking, yeah, but it's an executive order, which can be <laughs> overturned in a couple of years if there's a new president uh, in the White House. But I do wonder, is this potentially going to create some significant changes in terms of how U.S. big business operates. Well, that's uh, certainly the hope by by those who want more aggressive um, antitrust enforcement and see a lot of uh, problems in, in different markets. Um, I mean, I think a, a lot of the directives in the, in, the, in the order were telling, like, the antitrust enforcement agencies to get tougher on, on mergers. And so... Um, that's a, a decision that the agencies will have to make, obviously based on on the facts of, of specific deals. But you know what this order does is it gives uh, mm-hmm. political support to right. enforcers and other regulators to take tougher action. They're not going to feel like they're out in left field or right. um, you know unsupported if they want to do something. Right, and they face their boy, their their boss in the uh, Oval Office on Monday. If it's like, hey, wait a minute, we had that big signing. Remember that. Get to um, work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you so much, David McLaughlin, for uh, breaking it down for us. Bloomberg News Department of Justice reporter on the uh, phone from Washington, D.C. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic.
from Bloomberg Radio. Tim, what are you doing on Sunday? I am going to be here. I'm going to be hosting, uh, co-hosting with Ed Ludlow and Emily Chang, the special billionaires going to space. This one, Richard Branson. Looking forward to it. This could be some cool stuff. And you know who's going to be on the ground there in New Mexico? None other than a Bloomberg News' Ed Ludlow reporter, who's right now on the phone from San Francisco, right in between uh, jumping off a plane, getting back from Sun Valley, about to get on another plane to head to Spaceport America. Uh, Ed, are you tired yet? I'm tired, but I'm excited. You know, <laughs> these are not bad gigs. So I'm no. They're great. Hey, so take us through exactly what's going to happen on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Yeah, that's a good that's a good place to start, right? So the Virgin Galactic launch system is a two-parter. Imagine an aeroplane that has dual fuselage with a big wing that connects both sides. And then the actual spaceship is planted in the middle. So it takes off like a normal aeroplane. It climbs and climbs and climbs to a height, which is a little bit sort of a surprise to some people, but around 50,000 feet. Then 50,000 feet, and just for context, 50,000 feet, that's about 20,000 feet higher than like a commercial airliner would fly if it were flying across the United States. So it is is pretty high altitude, altitude, and that's just for stage one. So you hit 50,000 feet, and then the control release, release, and the rocket part drops from the middle of the wing, and then its engine ignites, and then it accelerates rapidly on an upward arc, to around 50 to 55 miles above Earth's atmosphere, which is a point of controversy because there's debate <laughs> about whether that really is going into space or not. Is it? Well, if you're on NASA, and I think NASA is a pretty good standard, you know, to go by. NASA says that anything above 50 miles above the Earth's atmosphere, above Earth, is space. That anyone goes beyond that point is technically an astronaut. But others disagree. The others say that the Kármán line, which is 62 miles above Earth, the kind of internationally recognized boundary of space, is true space. And Blue Origin, if you follow them on Twitter, they've been tweeting the differences between their system and their ambitions versus Virgin Galactic. And they, they say that Virgin Galactic are not going into space. Blue Origin, which is the company owned by Jeff Bezos, says that they simply are operating a high-altitude plane. Okay, hold on. What do you think about this, Ed? Because here we are. This is not Wendy's versus McDonald's, like duking it out on Twitter, right? Or is right? it? The, the, That's the, a really good analogy. <laughs> like, why, why is this happening? Because it's not like, you know, this is open to normal people yet. Like, who cares? This is cool. Well, the last time that the Virgin Galactic CEO, Michael Colglazier, was on Bloomberg Television, he said this is not about a race between two billionaires. Let's be honest, guys. Oh, come on. Of course it is. Let's get real. Jeff Bezos walked past me yesterday in Sun Valley. I shouted out to him, Jeff, how are you feeling about Blue Origin? How are you feeling about July 20th? And he didn't reply. By comparison, Richard Branson has been on international media and TV for weeks, drumming up interest and excitement about this. You know, when they do reach that 50 to 55 miles above Earth height, they will experience weightlessness. There will be six people on board total, two pilots, four crew members. They call them crew members. They'll unbuckle and they'll float around for a few minutes. And I've never felt or experienced weightlessness. I would love to, believe me. But I personally would take that to be in space because hmm. I'm not sure where else you could do, do you, that. Do you, other have, than, uh, do you have 250 sorry. grand to, to go uh, and do a four-day? I, I think you know the answer to that question. I, I do not have... <laughs> the capital to fund my my own space but that's why i say this is a billionaire's race because ultimately you know the the near-term ambitions of these two companies are funded by different means you know virgin galactic is a publicly traded company it was a a d-spac and blue origin is bankrolled by jeff bezos but at the end of the day it's those two men that have made this happen 
and they're putting themselves in pole position to be among a few people in history to ever go into space, you know, as civilians. Well, this is all about the development of space tourism, right? And you you look at Virgin Galactic shares. We've been talking about it this week on air. uh, On a tear this year, they've more than doubled. Is there a viable business that these billionaires, these space billionaires are creating, Ed, that, that will be with us for years to come? So what Virgin Galactic say about this is that their business model and future profitability is based on the efficiency of manufacturing the spacecraft because theirs is not a rocket that just simply shoots straight up. It's a plane. It's more energy efficient. But they basically say that the way they go about building these these planes is that they can do this at volume and they can get regular flights. They say they charged around $250,000 for the first 600 people that signed up. They're not taking orders at the moment. They're not taking bookings. But they're very confident that going forward that they will be cash flow positive and reach profitability based on the business model. There are others out there that disagree. I think we've discussed this, guys. Elon Musk says that launching as a business has a a, a peak of about $3 billion a year, regardless of the payload that Hmm. you're sending out. For him, the money's in the data, you know, Starlink, space internet, things like that. You know, and Elon Musk, with respect, is a good authority on this. But Virgin Galactic is very, very confident that this is a viable business model. And Virgin's got Virgin Orbit, which is not connected to Virgin Galactic anymore, but it's still part of the Virgin Empire. And it, you know, it yeah. does satellites. Yeah, it does. And for, for a very similar delivery mechanism, yeah. it's a, basically a custom 747 that comes to high altitude and the rocket drops off the bottom and then from that altitude launches uh, on a sort of arc. But same, same result, right? They put satellites into orbit yeah. and the money comes from the data generated. So 250000 a pop for a trip times 600 is $150 million. That's a lot. A lot. Virgin Galactic has an almost twelve billion dollar market cap. I'm just, and when it went public, it was a fraction of that. I mean, it's ten dollars a share because it was a spec. I gotta love it. I think continuing space exploration is is an interesting thing, and I'm looking forward to that special. Oh, thank you. It's gonna be fun. Nine a.m. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about ten and a half minutes to go. We are heading towards the... Already, uh, Carol? <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. Time flies when you're having fun. It has been a fun week, an interesting week, some volatility this week. And let's get to it with Nadia Lavelle. She is Senior U.S. Equity Strategist at UBS Global Wealth Management. Nadia joining us on the phone in New York City. Nadia, good to have you here. How do you explain this week? We had some selling. We had some buying. It's a risk on trade today. What do you believe investors are focusing on right now? Yes, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, yeah. So in terms of the volatility this week, we do think that it has to do with a confluence of things ranging from you know, concerns around peak growth, 
labor supply shortages potentially curtailing growth. Obviously, the Delta variants and the emerging Lambda variants is given some pause and concerns around global growth. I do think that, though, that investors should be focused on the overall strong economic growth that we're expecting in, in Q2 and that trend to sort of continue into the back half of the year. And, and then we expect to see above trend growth into 2020. It's going to be okay, right? At least for the next it's six months. Right? Absolutely. It's going to be okay. Earnings kick off next week. We are expecting another strong quarter of earnings. And at the end of the day, what drives the stock market is earnings. Yeah. And we do think that earnings is set up to beat. I mean, I'll unpack that just a little bit more for you. Uh, when we look at Q2 expectations, we think that they're just too low, right? What do you mean? Look at you think too low. Yeah. Wait, we are expecting sixty-four so, percent earnings growth on the S and P five hundred. That is too low, Carol. Not enough. Not really? Enough what? Let's unpack that. You know, okay. when you look at what uh, what expectations are versus Q one, is actually expected to decelerate, and so we don't agree with that. Huh. You should not expect. You should expect Q one to be the lowest quarter of the year in a non recessionary year. Right now, consensus expectation is for Q2 to decline about 8% versus Q1, which is just peculiar given that economic growth in Q2 is expected to be more than three percentage points acceleration from Q1. What drives earnings? Economic growth. So if economic growth is stronger in Q2, earnings growth should be even stronger than it was in Q1. Nadia, can we call you a bull? I am a bull. You can't tell from my voice. <laughs> I was going to say. So, okay. So, so, so how, does some, how does an investor prepare for this? I think you, we continue to like the value trade. We know we saw some weakness in it over the last couple of weeks. We've seen growth outperform value. Today is a better day for value. We think that trend will continue because we think that that's where the upside will be in earnings. The more economically sensitive sectors would like consumer discretionary financials, even energy, and those sectors tend to be in the value index. And so we expect them to beat on earnings in, in, in coming weeks, and that should help to propel those stocks even up further. So those are the sectors that we'd be looking to, to, to add to. And from a value growth um, standpoint, we've been looking to add to value. Hmm. So what about the names that have really provided a lot of momentum? Uh, those big tech names, the big fang stocks, have they already had their day in your view? In our view, they have had their moment. Okay. And the reason why they've had their moment recently um, is because rates have pulled back, right? And so that has allowed like valuation for those high valuation stocks Right, the discount rate has come down, and so that that caused the rotation in those, those uh, tech stocks. We think some of that is going to reverse, and and, and value will start to outperform again because we do think that interest rates are going to move higher. We're starting to see that again today. We expect that the yield on the ten-year will get to two percent by year end, and that is not a favorable setup for higher value stocks. So yeah, so then, so, them to see some headwinds. so then what happens to the, the high flying tech companies when interest rates go up like that? We expect them to stall out again as we saw earlier in the year. We expect that headwind to come back and we'll stall out and that's why we continue to provide value. We think also economic growth favors those value sectors. So the growth right. that we're seeing in value is just much higher than what we're seeing in the growth sectors. 2% on the 10-year by the end of the year. That's your forecast. 
But we know the Fed is willing to let things go a little hot. Do you think the Fed changes monetary policy significantly before the end of the year, whether it's reducing asset purchases uh, and letting things to start to roll off the balance sheet? And do they do anything when it comes to rates? So, yeah, we do expect that the Fed will start to message in the tapering of the balance sheet at Jackson Hole or in September, and we expect that tapering to start even in December or early next year. So that would be the, the, the change in terms of policy for us. In terms of the interest rates and moving short end rates, we don't think the Fed is going to do that anytime soon. Mm. We're looking for late 2023, early 2024. A lot of wait, 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 wait. late 2023 early 2024 before the fed starts to change rates exactly exactly that's a long time Uh, that is a long time and so a lot can happen between now and then but as we know the fed is very focused on economic data it's very data dependent but we think that we don't see anything on the horizon to derail the economic growth that that we're seeing and so Um, inflation transitory in your view transitory in our okay. view. Now, we'll get we'll get CPI numbers next week. We'll get the producer price index next week. Right. Don't be surprised if those run hot. We already know that. The Fed has also agreed with that. And so we do expect them to run a little bit hot. But by the time we get into year-end and early 2022, we expect inflation to start to normalize. So, Nadia, what, what derails this, this bull market and when does that happen? I think what could derail this, it tends to be Fed policy, but I think that the Fed is very careful this time around. Also, this new inflation regime that they have, you know, average inflation of the course of the side, gives them a lot more flexibility. And also, the Fed cares very much about the labor market, and so those numbers will be closely watched. So I think the chance of a Fed policy mistake that we have seen in the past that tends to derail the economy and the market, we think that probability is lower. Now, the other thing that, of course, that we're all closely watching is these variants. Mm-hmm. But uh, you got the there. Will be managed. You, you got, you got to, you no, know? It's, it's interesting because everyone brings it up. And I think it, it, it just is a reminder that that is on everyone's radar because that's the big outlier and that's the big unknown. Yes, but even the variants, like I think even there's a lower probability of that even derailing um, the equity markets because I think that, one, the science is better positioned to handle it, and also Mm. the markets themselves. We've already seen this Delta variance. We've already seen pharma companies coming out working on booster shot to help combat specifically the Delta variant. And so we think that that's going to happen. And so the market is getting more custom and also relying on pharma. We definitely have a little bit more of the playbook uh, at this point, even though it's still being written. Um, So much fun. Thank you. Great uh, Friday check-in on the markets. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.